Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, yesterday we got the final jobs report of the Obama era. We got the December non-farm payroll. Now, technically, when we get the January number, the first Friday of February, half of that would have been during the Obama presidency. But because we won't get the official news until the Trump presidency, I'm sure that Donald Trump is going to take the credit or maybe have to deal with the blame, uh, depending on uh, how that number ends up being received, whether it beats the consensus or misses. Uh, But this is really the final jobs number for Obama. And, you know, the number came out okay. I mean, it missed the consensus estimate was 175,000 jobs. And the actual number, at least until they revise it next month, was 156,000. So that was below what was expected. Now, they did revise upward the prior month from 178 to 204. And the month before that, they revised down a bit. So I guess when you take it all the revisions, uh, it was probably about a push on the number. But generally, the markets pay more attention to the most recent number rather than the revision. So this report you know, should have been seen as you know not, not so good. But most of what I was reading was about how strong not only this report was, but the entire job creation legacy of Barack Obama. This is what you get from the mainstream media uh, that peddles all the fake news about what a great economy 
President Obama is handing off to Donald Trump that, you know, we have really low unemployment. The official unemployment rate kicked up from 4.6, but still 4.7. So low unemployment, all these jobs being created, forgetting about the fact that once again, you're talking about low paying part-time jobs that have been created. In fact, the number of Americans not in the workforce rose again. It wasn't a big jump, but it was still a jump to a new all-time record high. So labor force participation has been eviscerated during the Obama years. It did tick up this last month to 62.7, but that is still an extremely low level. So of course, the media is going to gloss over all of this when they're praising the Obama uh, job creation legacy. But I think what they're trying to do is really set Trump up for failure because by preserving this narrative that everything is great and Obama is handing over this great economy to Trump. And now if something goes wrong, well, gee, Trump really screwed up because everything was great. Obama just, you know, handed over a, a incredible economy and look what Donald Trump did with it. Rather than understanding that the economy is a bubble, it's a much bigger bubble than the one that Clinton handed to George Bush. But, you know, politicians, as I said, never want to correctly label a bubble a bubble and deliver the bad news that we need to deal with the consequences of the problems. That's what Trump should be saying, that the economy is screwed up. There are a lot of problems here and it's going to be a painful process to correct all the damage that's been done under Barack Obama and, in fact, under George Bush as well. But that is not what Trump is going to do. Uh, he is going to try to preserve the bubble to the best he can because he knows and all the people that are surrounding him know and all the Republicans in Congress know that if anything bad happens, it's not going to be blamed on the mistakes of the past. It's going to be blamed on whoever happens to be in the Oval Office at the time you know, it hits the fan. And, and so the media, I can see that the way they're reporting about the jobs numbers and how great this economy is, because, you know, these numbers are very, very close to rolling over. I mentioned in my last podcast the problems that I see in the restaurant industry. Already this week, you can see in the retailers again, in Macy's and Sears and a number of companies announcing big layoffs. Again, lackluster holiday sales. They're closing down locations. They're laying people off. And again, a lot of these workers are part-time, and so there are more of them, uh, so it's going to hurt the, uh, the, the net count of jobs. So we're very close to a big turning point in the labor market. The only, I guess, true bright spot, if you want to call it that, in this report was the average hourly earnings rose by 0.4, which was a big improvement over the minus 0.1 that we got in the prior month. They were looking for 0.3, so that was a small beat. But, you know, if you average plus 0.4 with minus 0.1, you get a plus one, you know, 0.15, which is still pretty meager wage growth over the past two months. And if you look at hours worked, the work week actually shrank from 34.4 to 34.3 hours worked. And, and so I guess, you know, when you multiply the number of hours worked by the wages, it's probably a push. So there's probably no net increase in earnings, even though you're earning a little bit more per hour, but you're not working quite as many hours, right? So you multiply that out 
and the real income growth is just not there. And that's one of the reasons that uh, you had a, such a weak uh, sales uh, during the holiday season. If you actually look at the jobs themselves, you'll see that the biggest gain was in education and healthcare. I mean, there's a huge, huge number of employees added, particularly in healthcare. And I don't know what these guys are, janitors or orderlies. I mean, I don't think it's uh, real high paying healthcare jobs that we're adding. I mean, these aren't doctors that are, that are getting jobs in healthcare. Of course, education, kind of same thing. And a lot of these are low paying jobs. Uh, leisure and hospitality, again, another big category. That means we're still adding jobs, part-time jobs, of course, at, you know, at bars and, and restaurants and things like that. Uh, but again, you know, the goods producing sector, very, very weak performance. We did gain a little bit in manufacturing, but mining and logging, we still lost jobs. We lost jobs in, in construction, information technology. Uh, so, uh, you know, wholesale trade eked out a small gain. Uh, you know, government, again, more jobs for government. But we don't want more government jobs. Those, those jobs are unproductive and cost us money. The taxpayer has to pay for the government jobs, right? When the government hires somebody, that costs me money. If a private company hires somebody, it doesn't cost me anything. Right? But when the government hires somebody, I get the bill for that. So I don't like to see uh, government jobs being added because that just increases the burden on the taxpayer of employing uh, these individuals. I want more individuals working productively in the private sector, not working unproductively in the government sector to actually make those still working in the private sector even less productive. Now, the markets uh, didn't really react to these numbers you had a rally in the dollar and you know given the fact that i thought the report was relatively weak the dollar shouldn't have rallied but the dollar got clobbered the day before so i think what really happened is traders were kind of reversing and taking profits because we didn't have a really bad number maybe some people were bracing for a very bad number we didn't get that and so i think people took profits the dollar really got clobbered on thursday the opposite with gold. Gold had a huge day. Gold was up 17 bucks, I think, on Thursday. And then it gave about half of that back on Friday. Same thing happened with the bond market. The bond market had a big rally on Thursday and then surrendered most of those gains on Friday. So it really was a reversal. Also in the stock market, the stock market was down on Thursday. I mean, at one point, the Dow was down about 100, but I, I only think it closed down about 40 or 50. But we had a rally in the Dow today, right? The Dow closed up 64, still not quite at 20,000. In fact, the high for the Dow intraday was 19,999.63. You know, it, may, it reminds me of, uh, you know, Maxwell Smart, the character in Get Smart. One of his famous lines was, missed it by that much. And pretty much... That's what they did. They just missed it, 20,000. Obviously, we're very close. We closed at 19,963.8. So very, very high probability that we'll get to the 20,000 level next week. Will we hold it for the close? We'll see what happens. But uh, you know, I think that the, the more the market rallies before Trump is inaugurated, uh, the more it's going to fall after he's sworn in. And of course, as I said, he's already claimed ownership of this bubble. So now when the air comes out, it's going to be his fault. It's not going to be Barack Obama's. Although when I'm thinking about this, uh, missed it by that much. 
That also applies to uh, Bitcoin. I talked about Bitcoin on my podcast on Wednesday. And you know, I got lots of thumbs down. I mean, normally I might get like, I don't know, 10 to 20 thumbs down. You know, there are those Peter Schiff trolls out there that can't wait to put a thumbs down on my YouTube video, even though they haven't even watched it yet. Because a lot of times I'll see, I'll go to the YouTube channel and there'll be people that have, you know, thumbs up and thumbs down, but the video's only been up for two minutes and it's a 30, 40 minute video. So how could you like it or not like it so early? So there are plenty of people that are just, you know, want to put a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I think the people that don't like me uh, are, are, are quick. But I got like 100 thumbs down on the w- video from Wednesday. So I don't think I have that many, uh, you know, trolls out there. I think what's happening is a number of people who do follow me are, you know, are part of the, the cult of, of, of Bitcoin. And, I, you know, I, I think it is very cultish, the attitude that a lot of people have. I mean, very similar, I find, to attitudes people had about, you know, their dot-com stocks that they particularly liked during the 1990s. I mean, if you said anything negative about this company, you know, uh, they were all over you because they, they didn't want to acknowledge that maybe some of the things they believed were just not true, right? Because they, they had such a vested interest in it being true. And I think that's the same thing with a lot of people who own Bitcoin and who believe that just by owning these Bitcoins, they're going to be millionaires or billionaires when these things are $100,000 a piece or a million a piece or whatever people think they're going to. So a lot of people, because I said something negative about Bitcoin, immediately just thumbs down uh, my last uh, you know podcast on YouTube. So I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of thumbs down on this one too, because again, I'm not talking uh, very favorably about, about Bitcoin. But when I mentioned it on the podcast on Wednesday, it was because it was almost at parity with gold for the second time. Bit- Bitcoin got up to around 1140 was the high and gold at the time was around 1160. And so I talked about it because I thought, hey, this is probably another top. This is like a double top area. This is where Bitcoin had a lot of resistance last time when it got up around the price of gold, everybody was excited. Hey, it's, you know, Bitcoin is worth the same as gold and it's going to keep rising. And there was kind of the same euphoria happening this time. And of course, it was happening. What drove it up there, I mentioned, was Chinese buying. There was all this frantic buying of Bitcoins out of China by Chinese who were worried about capital control and a falling yuan. And so I mentioned it mainly to point it out, but also to just give people a little advice who may have been holding on to some Bitcoin that, hey, this was another opportunity to sell some Bitcoin at a very, very good price and to, more more importantly, use your Bitcoin to buy gold because the gold price of Bitcoin was at the lowest it's been, right? This is, if, if Bitcoin is now at a high point in terms of gold, that means gold is at a low point in terms of Bitcoin. And, you know, you buy low and you sell high. So if somebody wants gold and they have Bitcoin, well, Wednesday night was a perfect time to sell Bitcoin high and to buy buy gold low. Now, I don't know why, in hindsight, people are giving me thumbs down for suggesting that. I mean, even if you are a Bitcoin aficionado and you have a lot of Bitcoin, you would have benefited by following my advice on Wednesday night because within a day, the price of Bitcoin collapsed down to around 800. I mean, as I'm recording this now, I mean, it's recovered. I mean, it's about 880, but 
Earlier this morning or last night, the low on this day was 812. And I forget if it broke 800 yesterday or not, but I remember that when I was watching it, when I, when I woke up on Friday morning, Bitcoin was still above 1,000. You know, and then it traded down, you know, almost a couple hundred dollars in maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. I mean, the price just collapsed in a very short period of time. And that's exactly what I talked about. I said, you had all these Chinese bidding it up. I said, what happens if the yuan rises or the Chinese now want out? That's exactly what happened. We had a huge rally in uh, the RMB, and that's what precipitated the sharp decline. And this is huge volatility. You're talking about the price of Bitcoin changing by more than 25%, really, in, a, in less than a 24-hour period. I mean, that is a huge drop in price. That is massive volatility, which is a reason why I've been saying that Bitcoin is not good as money, because it's too volatile. How do you keep track of prices when the value of the money that you're trying to price things in is subject to such wild swings? When you have a money gaining and losing 5 or 10% or more value in a matter of days or a matter of hours, it makes conducting commerce in that currency extremely difficult. That's why I said, well, you know, you could trade Bitcoin if you want to trade it, but I don't see it as a substitute for money, and I don't see it as a long-term store of value. Now, I saw somebody made a comment on my YouTube channel that, well, Bitcoin isn't made to be a store of value. It's just a medium of exchange. Well, if, you, if it's not a store of value, then, it, then it's not good as a medium of exchange. I mean, that's the whole purpose. You have to be able to save your money to spend it later. It can't just be, well, I'm only going to buy Bitcoin to immediately sell it. It doesn't work that way. If you really want to be money, you have to be able to save the money. You have to be able to loan the money to somebody else and be repaid back uh, with money of you know, equal or greater purchasing power. That is the whole idea. And so because Bitcoin is not a store of value, it can't really be money. And, and it's not really good as a medium of exchange either. I think gold is much better, which is why I recommended on my podcast that people who had some Bitcoin and who wanted to take advantage of the price spike, that they use their Bitcoin to go to the gold money website and turn some of their Bitcoins into gold, into real gold, but still maintain the liquidity that you have with Bitcoin because you can still spend your gold through gold money the same way you spend your Bitcoins. There are merchants that will take gold money directly and more merchants are signing up every day to, to accept uh, payment in gold. And of course, gold money has something that Bitcoin doesn't. You have a debit card. So you can spend your gold anywhere that accepts MasterCard if you have your gold stored with gold money. But one point I did want to address that I noticed that was made in a comment. Somebody said, well, you know, Peter, the, you're missing the big difference here, and that's centralized versus decentralized, counterparty risk, right? If you have, you know, gold, then you have this counterparty risk because you're keeping it with gold money. Well, first of all, the counterparty isn't gold money. The counterparty is bricks, right? Gold money doesn't have your gold. They're just facilitating your ability to transact with your gold. It's stored at Brinks. So Brinks is your counterparty. And is there some counterparty risk? Well, of course, there's always counterparty risk when you store something with a third party. Now, is the risk high? No, I think it's extremely low. I think Brinks is a, is a very safe company. And of course, they have insurance. 
behind that as well. So you have a, a reputable uh, third party that I don't think there's ever been any money lost that was entrusted to Brinks. I think they have a perfect record of keeping uh, whatever is entrusted with them safe. But even if that's not the case, you've got insurance backing it up. So there is a lot of protection. Is it 100%? No, nothing is 100%. But you've got the same problem with, with Bitcoin. Like a lot of people keep their Bitcoins with a third party. Look what happened to Mt. Gox, right? How much money was lost there? Now, I know people will say, well, that's the mistake. Don't keep your Bitcoin with a third party. Keep it yourself. Well, I mean, if you want to be able to use it in commerce, you've got to keep it, I guess, in your own digital wallet. But, I mean, that's still on the internet. I mean, somebody's got to be able to hack that. I mean, maybe the probability is low, but the probability is not non-existent. Now, I know some of you will say, well, you don't even need to keep it in a digital wallet. You can write it on a piece of paper or something, but then you lose a lot of the value of, of Bitcoin because if it's on a piece of paper, I mean, how, you know, what are you going to do with it? You're going to go and hand it to somebody physically? Well, then you might as well own gold. If you're going to hand something to somebody, you might as well hand them gold. But here is the important distinction that wasn't really, I didn't get into it, but I want to talk about it now, about how I recommend that people use gold money versus using physical gold. Because I don't tell people to keep all your gold at gold money. You just keep some of your gold at gold money. Let's say somebody came to me uh, and they wanted to buy $50,000 worth of gold, right? I'm working at Shift Gold and they want to buy $50,000 worth of gold. I might say, okay, let's put $45,000 into some Canadian maple leaves, right? Get some one ounce maple leaves. You store those at home and you know, put them in a safe in your basement or bury them in your backyard, right? Keep it someplace nice and safe. And let's open up an account at Gold Money and buy $5,000 worth of gold there, right? So you've got 10% of your gold stored with a third party and you've got 90% of it stored safely and privately, you know, in your house. Now, the gold that you have in gold money, that's your liquidity. That's the gold that's available for commerce. If you need to buy something, that's the gold you use. You don't use the coins that are in your safe. You use the grams of gold in your gold money account. That's what you conduct commerce in. Now, of course, gold money is not just for spending. It's for earning too, right? If you're smart, you're going to earn your gold. And if you're really smart, you're going to earn more gold than you spend. And so your gold money account balance will grow. It won't shrink, right? Because you can invoice people. If you provide a service, you can be paid in gold. If you sell products, you can accept payment in gold, right? So you can allow your gold money account to grow as you also use your gold to buy the things that you need. But to the extent that you know, you're spending more gold than you're earning and you're drawing down your balance of gold money, and let's say you're 5000 uh, you know, worth, worth of gold dwindles down to a very small amount and now you need to replenish your liquidity, well, then you can take some of those coins that you bought and deposit them into your gold money account and turn those one ounce maple leaves into liquid gold grams of gold money that you can then use. So, you know, it's not about um, gold money being the substitute for Bitcoin. It's gold itself. Gold is what you want to own not Bitcoin. It's just gold money makes gold as convenient to use as Bitcoin. In fact, I think more convenient to use when it comes to commerce because you can deposit some of your gold into your gold money account and now it takes all those liquid characteristics that so many people like about, about Bitcoin. Of course, it doesn't have that you know decentralized, well, you don't have to worry about, um, you know, 
a third counterparty. But you know what? The, the risks to keeping a small portion of your gold at gold money and the risk that while it's there, you know, there's some type of theft or some type of government confiscation, that risk is small. I think it probably is smaller than the risk that something bad happens to your Bitcoins. But meanwhile, you know, anything you do with Bitcoin, unless you're just writing it on a piece of paper, which I don't think anybody actually does that, people are transacting using their computers. All that stuff is traceable. You don't think the government knows when people are online and they're sending bitcoins to some somebody else. You don't think all that stuff can be traced. So you're not acting in private, in secret when you're when you're doing this. And of course, there is risk that government cracks down on bitcoin. In fact, I think there's more risk that governments crack down on bitcoin than they do on gold money. In fact, look what happened with China. Uh, yesterday, they came out and they're, they're doing something to, to minimize uh, the marketing of Bitcoin in China. Uh, and, and believe me, I think that you have a lot more illegal activity going on. There's no illegal activity going on with, uh, with gold money. They have very good uh, you know, KYC, know your customer. They make sure that you know, there's no terrorists or things like that, uh, drug you know, trafficking, money laundering. But with Bitcoin, you probably have a lot of that, you know, illegal economy utilizing Bitcoin, which creates problems with red flags. You know, banks, the banks are very afraid of getting involved uh, with Bitcoin. But that won't be the case, I think, with gold money because they have all of the proper protocols that the banks would require in order to be compliant with their regulators. So, you know, there's always going to be risks. And the people who think, well, you know, gold is no good because you've got a counterparty. You've got to look at your counterparties and you've actually got to recognize when risks are very small and when risk may be more substantial. I think the counterparty risk with gold money is extremely small. And of course, when you only keep a fraction of your gold with gold money and you keep other gold safe, now it's only a small percentage of your overall gold holdings that is subject to a very, very small risk. I think that's much safer than holding on to Bitcoin. And of course, the biggest risk of all to Bitcoin is not that somebody steals your Bitcoin, but that the value collapses before you have a chance to spend it. I mean, if Bitcoin can go from 1100 to 800 in one day, it can go from 800 to 500. It can go from 800 to 100. It can go from 800 to zero. And that may happen one day. We don't know. But why take the chance? And now there are some people that say, well, you know, because what if it's worth a million dollars a coin? All right, fine. You want to have a small amount of your money in Bitcoin? You want to put, you know, 1% of your portfolio in Bitcoin on the odd chance that it could actually go that high? Okay, I'm not going to, you know, tell you not to do that. But that is a gamble. It's like buying a lottery ticket. Maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. But I think the odds are that it won't work. That's why you want to just put a little bit of money there. And, you know, everybody that wants to come out and criticize me for pointing this out, you know, I, you got to take a hard look at, at yourself and your own situation. Don't get too mentally caught up in the trade. Don't fall in love with the trade. Now, do I wish I had bought some Bitcoin when it was a dollar or 50 cents? I mean, I didn't even know about it when it was that cheap. But, you know, I did find out about it somewhere between... I think a dollar and ten dollars. I can't really remember exactly. I know I found that somebody told me about it, in, and, and, I, and I looked at it and I didn't really research it. And yeah, I do regret. Obviously, that's another trade that I could have done, and I could have anticipated, uh, you know, this bubble 
uh, creating in, in Bitcoin. And yeah, I, I, I wish I would have bought some way back then. And But had I done it, I would be out by now. I mean, may, would I have a little bit left? Yeah, I might have a tiny bit left just you know to keep a little bit of my chips on the table just in case. But the vast majority I would have sold. And I think the people who did buy way back then, I think they've already bailed out on most of their Bitcoin. And I think to the extent that they still have some, they're trying to get rid of it. They're unloading it into this hysteria. You know, I don't regret not necessarily buying it, you know, at three or 400, you know, a year ago. You know, I mean, I could have, because there's plenty of, I mean, I bought gold stocks that have gone up more than that. You know, I mean, gold stocks, I bought gold and silver stocks that I bought um, a year, year and a half ago. Some of them are five times higher or more than they were. So, I, you know, I've made some decent speculative bets. I don't have to speculate in, in, in Bitcoin. But, you know, when I first started telling people not to buy Bitcoin, it wasn't, it was like 800 bucks by the time I actually mentioned it on my podcast. And I only mentioned it because I saw the hysteria. It ran re really quickly. And I said, God, it's a bubble. If you were smart enough to have bought some Bitcoin when it was really cheap, sell. That was my advice. And then the market collapsed. The fact that it's now rallied back up to a little higher than it was at that point doesn't, doesn't mean I'm wrong. And, uh, and again, look how quickly the price can go down. So, you know, if you're going to give me a thumbs down on this video, fine, because I'm, you know, warning people about, uh, about Bitcoin, you know, whatever. But I think my warnings are important and I think people need to take them to heart. And if you're really looking for a, an alternative, which you should be, everybody should be looking to, for an alternative to dollars or euros or yen or Chinese RMB. Everybody should be looking for an alternative. Yet it's staring you in the face. The alternative is gold, right? It, what, everything that's old is new again. And this gold money makes the gold standard new again. Gold standard 2.0. They were calling Bitcoin gold 2.0. It wasn't. I was calling it, you know, Tulip Mania 2.0. Gold money is gold 2.0 because it takes the gold standard and brings it into the digital age, the internet age, and makes commerce in gold easier than it has ever been in the history of man. So if gold was good money before gold money was created, it's even better money now. It'll work even better now than it did in the past. And it worked great in the past. So it's going to work fantastic now. But you got to take part in it. You got to participate. You got to get your friends to participate. So go, if you haven't done it, go to Gold Money and you know, open up an account. And you know what? I'm looking at Bitcoin. Bitcoin now is getting close to 900 again. It's still a high price, right? You can still take some of your Bitcoin. Yeah, it's not 1100, but 900 still high. And might it rally back up? Sure. Might it go back above gold? At some point, yeah, it might, but it's all speculation, right? And of course, it could collapse as well. And so why take the risk when you have a far less risky alternative? You know, one more piece of economic news that came out at the same time as the December jobs report, which of course got no press, was the trade deficit. I talked, I think, on my last podcast about the merchandise trade deficit, which is the real important one. In fact, you know, everybody waits for the jobs numbers, right? This is the big number. All the traders are waiting for these job numbers. And if it veers too much from the consensus, right, everybody's going to push the buy button or the sell button, depending on what market they're trading. Well, it wasn't always the case that the jobs number was the big number. At one point in the 1980s, it was the trade deficit. That was the biggest number of the month. 
That was the number that the currency traders watched. It was the number that the bond traders watched, that the S&P traders watched. That was the big number. Now it means nothing. Nothing at all. No one even cares that the number comes out. And they only focused on merchandise trade. Right? They didn't focus on the, the overall deficit, which includes services. They were just looking at goods, merchandise. right? And that deficit is around $65 billion right now per month. I remember the biggest deficit that we had was in late 1987. We had a $17 billion trade deficit one month. And it was pandemonium, right? The dollar got killed, right? I mean, this was like horrible, 17 billion in one month. And now we're printing 65 billion and nobody even bats an eyelash, right? But these are bad things. In the 80s, people were right because see, central bankers were looking at these deficits as a problem. And, 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 but now no one, no one even looks at it because I guess the problem is so big now because the number is so big that nobody even wants to deal with it because it's impossible. But we got the overall trade deficit, and it came out at $45.2 billion, which was an uh, increase from the prior month, which was 42.4, And it was you know, higher than the consensus estimate of 44.5. So bad news on the trade deficit. And that means a, a drag on GDP, but it also means more downward pressure on the dollar. Now, despite the jobs number and the uh, trade deficit being a little worse than expected, the Atlanta Fed did not downwardly revise its fourth quarter GDP estimate. It's still up at 2.9% for the quarter, which to me seems uh, a bit high. Uh, We'll see what we end up getting, but this seems like it's a little bit too optimistic. Maybe they're waiting for Trump to take over so they can start revising stuff down and somehow blame it on on Donald Trump. But, uh, you know, this is still a a higher GDP estimate than we had... um, around the time that Trump was elected. I think it was around 2.5. But I think what really caused some of the numbers to be higher was just a lot of the hope and optimism surrounding the Trump presidency. You know, it's interesting. I read a, a report that came out that said that the millennials are the only, I guess, demographic group that is now more pessimistic than they were before the election. And it's probably because so many of the millennials uh, we're, you know, we're voting for Hillary Clinton and they're very disappointed. It was the older people that voted enthusiastically for Trump and they're the ones that have their hopes up. But it's some of the younger people who are even more uh, concerned now than they were before. But it's not like they were optimistic under Obama. They weren't. You know, I mean, a lot of these guys voted for Bernie Sanders. Uh, and you know, th- they hoped, though, that things would get better under Hillary Clinton, even though they were terrible under Barack Obama. You know, idealistically, they just bought into all this nonsense. And of course, remember, Hillary Clinton was promising all sorts of free stuff to the millennials, right? Free college. And so now people are disappointed that they're not going to get all that free stuff, right? They're going to actually have to pay for stuff. And, you know, the, the, the circumstances are certainly bad for younger people who are trapped, you know, in, you know, in poverty. They're living with their parents. Maybe they have a bunch of debt. They borrowed money to go to college and they wasted their time. They wasted money. They've got a worthless degree that cost them a fortune. And now they've got a lot of debt. I mean, this is a very, very typical story for a lot of the millennials who are now even more pessimistic since Trump was elected than they were before. But again, a lot of people, I think, are set up for major disappointment because people's expectations are very, very high. And when they're not met, it's going to be bad. You know, normally, you want to set the bar low, right? You want people to, you know, you want to under-promise and over-deliver. 
Well, right now, I think Trump has made the mistake of over-promising. And, 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 and people are expecting the best. And when it's not delivered, uh, confidence could really plunge. And I think there's going to be plenty of people pointing the fingers at Trump. And the Republicans, if they don't play their cards right, because that's the same thing that happened to, uh, to George Bush. And, you know, Trump is surrounding himself by the same guys. You've got Larry Kudlow, right? You got Art Laffer, uh, you got Steve Moore. I mean, these are good. Some of these are good guys. I mean, I know Steve Moore. I know Larry Kudlow. Uh, you know, these are good guys, right? They're free market guys. But these are the same guys that kind of wrap themselves around uh, the rhetoric during the Bush years. They refused to accept what I was talking about. When I was talking about the bubble, they just dismissed it, right? It was like, oh, if we have a Republican president and taxes are being cut, well, then everything is great. Well, it's not great, right? Just cutting taxes in and of itself is not a panacea. It doesn't make everything great. Just having a Republican president who somehow is going to ignite, you know, animal spirits just by talking favorably about business as opposed to a Democrat who may vilify business, just having a pro-business president who's willing to cut taxes doesn't solve overwhelming structural problems and imbalances that exist in the economy. And so the people that Trump is surrounding himself with did not recognize those problems during the Bush years. And of course, when the market collapsed and we had the Great Recession, it was blamed on the rhetoric of Bush. It was blamed on the free market. And I don't want the same thing to happen again. I don't want this bubble to burst while Trump is president. And now the blame is not on the Federal Reserve and Yellen and, and, uh, and, and Barack Obama, but somehow the blame is on Donald Trump, is on the Republicans in Congress, the blame is on tax cuts, the blame is on deregulation, because that's exactly what the mainstream media and I think the powers that be seem to be setting us up for so they can ride to our rescue in 2020 with promises of bigger government and more regulation and higher taxes on the rich that once again destroy the economy because the Republicans let them out of their cage. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hi, this is Peter Schiff, and long before foreign governments were buying gold, I urged my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. 
Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait-and-switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report, Classic Gold Scams, and how to avoid getting ripped off for free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must-read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.